Welcome to the 85%. I'm Mira Sharma, and I'm here with my colleagues Vinay Chavla and Joseph Dana. Hey guys. Hey, hey. How's it going? Nice to nice to hear your voice. Yeah, you too. So, so you listeners have heard all of us on the podcast before, but not together. Um, so I'm here to tell you that we actually do work together, but we're all over the place. Joseph lives in Cape Town. I live in London. Vinay lives in Dubai. So Emerge 85, which is the home base organization for this podcast, is a truly global operation. Uh, and Vinay, I wonder if you could give listeners a sense of what we are sort of generally up to right now, what we're focusing on these days. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Sure. Um, you know, in terms of the topics and issues we cover, uh, we have, I think, as our listeners and readers know well, um, focus on all these fast-paced trends that are happening in emerging markets. And our overall thinking has been that that the world is changing rapidly, emerging markets especially so. Um, that's 85% that lives outside the U.S. and Western Europe really represents an age of aspiration and that they're really becoming this economic force. Um, and only gonna, that's only going to continue. Uh, and we've talked about connectivity and what the internet means, urbanization, a lot of them moving into cities, just their very young age and how youthful they are and how many of them are moving to middle classes and how all of that is really driving the local econ global economy and it'll account for 70% of the global economy in the next 10 or 15 years. Um, and then we've, we've talked about the political and cultural consequences of that. Um, and so I think we'll continue to do that, and we have been, but what's starting to dominate our conversation, I think, it's an elephant in the room, often, often an invisible one, but that's really this idea of uneven growth uh, around the world and what the consequences of that are. Um, and you know, it's said in different ways, inequality, it translates into things like stagnant wages, uh, services that people can't afford, um, low savings, et cetera. Uh, and I think for us as an organization, we tend to focus, we're starting to focus on that issue in emerging markets um, and how in emerging markets, that's really about these next billion people that haven't really benefited from technology because they haven't really been online, but are starting to do so rapidly. They earn a few dollars a day. And so we end up talking a lot about how, and will, I think, and what's exciting is sort of the tech solutions that could serve them. Um, and then as a global issue, things like what their rights for data mean. And you can see data playing out uh, as an issue around the world. And you have market solutions like what we have uh, in the United States with Facebook and uh, uh, and Google and others determining a market solution. You have a China solution. You have a European solution. But what are some alternative solutions and what are the solutions in some of these other markets where uh, people that are earning a few dollars a day, their data is their currency? Um, so this whole next billion that we're talking about, I actually saw uh, uh, an article recently. I don't know if you guys have been following this. Uh, it's a good news story, uh, this Kiki Challenge. Um, you guys know what the Kiki Challenge is? No, I don't. Oh, you guys both? Okay, well, it's for the youthful, but it's this song that Drake did, um, Drake being the Canadian hip-hop artist. It's kind of like what happened with Pharrell Williams and Happy, uh, but Drake did the song and people started doing a dance to it all over the world and people started racking up videos. It started with one um, comedian doing a video and they're all dancing and singing in this Kiki song. But in a small village in, in southern India, two guys in their early 20s are pushing an oxen. Like this is a village where they have no paved roads. Um, they're in a, a muddy rice paddy. It's monsoon season. They're wearing a, a dhoti, which is sort of a traditional cloth around, uh, around their lower half of their body and a banyan, which is sort of a, a cut-off t-shirt. Uh, and, and they start dancing to the kiki song. And, and it's incredible because this is, this is not like a middle class. I mean, it was always cool when you saw people all over the world mimic a song 
song, but these guys really represent the next billion. Um, and they have aspiration and they're connected. And, um, and not to get too dark, but they, they probably live in a village and access for them is somewhat limited to healthcare and education. But they're also at the same time very well connected to, to the global economy. Um, so I think those are like the, the folks that we're focused on. And I think for a long time, people have thought of them uh, as aid beneficiaries. And I think we're thinking of them, well, it's not a, maybe a pure capitalist solution for them. But we do have to think about them as customers and, and, and what does data mean for them, as I said, and, uh, and, and people have seen that in our story. So I think it's an exciting time. It started, what we're starting to focus on is who, who are the people, what are the change makers um, that are starting to address the problems for these folks and, and think of services for them. Yeah, um, I'm. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that I, I hadn't heard of that, but that's. You're gonna have to go listen to it and, and do a little dance too, and put it up on YouTube. <laughs> um, so uh, with all these kinds of swirling changes going on, we are coming at it from a lot of different angles. So we have this podcast, but we also um, produce a lot of other content um, on Emerge 85's website. Joseph, one of the sort of regularly occurring features is a profile you write about an exciting sort of social change-oriented company or individual in the emerging world. Um, tell us about a recent one. Yeah, so the profiles actually were a really nice way of addressing some of these really large systemic issues that Vinay was talking about. Because when we talk about the emerging world, it's a very big place. Um, and so by focusing on a company or an individual that is addressing local challenges, usually through some sort of technological innovation, it's a great way to, to tell an interesting story, but also address these larger problems. One of the most recent ones we've done is, um, is a profile of a company called Bima. Now, Bima is actually based in Stockholm. It's not based in, um, in the emerging world, but it is operating in multiple emerging markets. And what it's do doing is uh, essentially providing insurance. Um, we have been really focused on the issue of financial inclusion in general. Uh, that's one of the, the primary issues in which we see the most kind of technological innovation addressing really core issues um, that get into the space of e income inequality, economic inequality, um, and bringing that next billion into the kind of formal financial world. Now, Bima is a, as I said, an insurance company, but it's approaching this issue of insurance and providing insurance using a lot of the same kind of themes that other financial inclusion startups are, uh, are using. Um, and so effectively, what they have recognized, um, specifically in Africa, which is one of their, their largest markets, they're very uh, present in Ghana, Uganda, and other countries, they've recognized that um, a lot of Africans are getting formal financial bank accounts, formal financial services. Uh, this has been a, a big push by a lot of development agencies, um, and it's been going on for quite some time. But the problem is, is that once somebody has a bank account, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to use it. And that can also extend to insurance, is that a lot of Africans in the markets that Beam is working in um, are used to um, very small payments. Um, they're making payments that are sometimes 60 cents a day, U.S. cents a day, 20 cents a day. And the bank, the formal banking structure and insurance industry is not really, they've been slow to understand to how to, you know, kind of take advantage of those payments. And so oftentimes they're levying very high fees on small payments, making, um, you know, mobile money or anything uh, in that area kind of pointless for, for someone, um, making cash a much more kind of viable option. 
So BIMA has created a system in which um, uh, Africans that wouldn't necessarily have insurance or access to formal insurance are able to use airtime through mobile carriers and buy insurance on programs that um, that are used to very small payments. Premiums are, are starting at 60 cents a day for most customers. And it's been an incredibly successful model. Um, and I, I spoke to the deputy CEO um, in depth about, you know, some of the challenges and opportunities she's seen in the industry. Um, you know, one is the, the fee issue that I, I mentioned. And another is education and awareness, is that a lot of people uh, across the African continent really don't understand uh, how formal insurance works. And so Beamba business has been um, to to provide uh, you know a very low fee model and um, to educate large portions of the the uh, the countries in which they're they're operating in about what insurance means and how it's beneficial I think one of the big takeaways that I had is that there's not enough companies that are operating and acknowledging um, that education is such a large part of the business structure in the emerging markets um, and also just the, the sheer opportunity that exists uh, we have a graphic in the piece of the amount of people that they've signed up, and it's quite it's quite shocking. I mean, 26 million customers reached, uh, 110 million dollars in capital raised. I mean, these are very very serious projects tapping into a customer base that is just now coming online, uh, and that is quite revolutionary when you think about it. Yeah, you know what I thought, Joseph uh, was was somewhat uh, slick was that these guys had come up with a, a market solution around the whole. Uh, the payments and the fees issues because we see a lot of the next billion sort of as you said getting bank accounts but given that fees can run 15 20% they basically bartered airtime and allowed you to buy insurance as uh, I think you said 60 cents um, as a premium without having to pay a 20% uh, 20% um, uh, fee, which uh, anyone making a few dollars a day could be quite sensitive to. So it'll be interesting to see if we find other players or you're able to find other change makers that are doing something similar. And I think it probably speaks to the power of, of crypto as well. So that was, uh, to me, that was really, that was really cool because it sounded like a win-win situation for BMO. Really interesting. And uh, you can read these profiles on our website at emerge85.io. So definitely go check those out. So Mira, um, who did you interview for this week's show? So uh, I recently talked with uh, a woman named Aline Sara, who is the founder of a startup called Natakalam, which means we speak in Arabic. And uh, what it does is it pairs refugees and displaced people, uh, right now mostly Syrian refugees who are in Lebanon, with people all over the world who want to learn Arabic. Uh, so it creates a kind of income stream for refugees, many of whom aren't actually allowed to work in Lebanon or the countries where they end up. And uh, so this is kind of a remote to work opportunity for them, leveraging the gig economy. Um, and it also helps language learners practice conversational Arabic, which is great because if you're learning Arabic in, say, a Western university, it tends to be a very formal, almost Shakespearean type of Arabic. And then beyond that, it's um, really about making connections across worlds of difference and, and deepening understanding uh, on both sides. And the organization has plans to scale and grow to work with other languages and displaced populations. So it's really interesting. Aline was super thoughtful and smart, and we had a great conversation. Cool. Sounds fascinating. Um, looking forward to listening to it. Let's do, let's do that now, Mira, with uh, Aline Sarah. Aline, welcome to the 85% Podcast. Thank you for having me. So um, tell me about where the seed of the idea for, for Nata Kalem came from. 
Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Lebanon. Uh, so I, I was born and raised in New York. My parents came to the U.S. originally for my, my father's studies, but he also happened to be coming at the time of the highest level of violence in Lebanon civil war. So with that happening in, in the region, my parents actually chose to stay in the U.S. to raise me and my brothers. So I kind of grew up um, shuttling back and forth between Beirut, uh, Paris, where I had a lot of family as well, and New York. So kind of very much aware of the dichotomy between being uh, born and raised in a country where there isn't uh, conflict and violence and one where, you know, your cousins are spending half their time in shelters and, you know, you, you call your grandparents and, you know, you hear that like, um, you know, there, there was bombing in their street and, you know, they don't know what's going to happen. So I think that kind of um, instilled in me this, this interest and passion for human rights, conflict resolution, social justice. I studied psychology and philosophy at Tufts University, and then I moved to Lebanon. Um, and this was right after, again, another war took place, which was the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah war. I mean, people have different ways of calling it. But um, sure. I spent about four to five years on and off uh, traveling back and forth and based in the Middle East. And I then fell into journalism and I worked as a reporter there. And while I was a journalist, I was also working on my Arabic. I was very often around aid workers, journalists, many people who were studying Arabic. The reason I didn't speak fluent Arabic was because I am a Francophone as well. So I'm a Lebanese Francophone and I grew up speaking French with a bit of Arabic at home. And then obviously English I learned because I was in New York. But um, Arabic was never a language that I mastered fully. So I, I would take Arabic classes as well. And um, it was also interesting to notice that Arabic is a very particular language because we have a, a difference between the modern standard Arabic, which is the formal Arabic that unites all 22 Arab League states and is almost like a very heavy Shakespearean English and the dialects that are spoken in, in, in the countries and the regions. What was happening is that a lot of, for example, American students were studying the formal version of the language, and then I'd see them come, and even myself, because I'd, study, I'd studied formal Arabic when I was taking Arabic in the U.S., and then you go to the region, and you, you, you just get in a cab, and you, you say the words you've learned to say hello, and it's, you know, the cab driver will laugh at you, because no one speaks that way um, in the day-to-day. Right. -day. So kind of, sorry, I'm going back and forth, but I, so I was in the Middle East, I was working as a reporter, I was following the Arab uprisings, and notably the situation for Syria. So Lebanon is the country with the highest density of refugees in the world. Um, we have a history of hosting Palestinian refugees and then add on now the Syrian conflict and Lebanon being a population of four million, where about, about one out of four people are, are refugees in, in Lebanon. And also while I, while I was there, I was also aware that refugees in Lebanon, Syrian refugees who are about five million in the neighboring countries to Syria will probably never get a work permit if they're in kind of middle class professions. So I, you know, left Lebanon in 2012 to, to study at Columbia University to complete my master's there. And then in 2015, you know, there was this, uh, this awakening of the refugee crisis, right? Because there was that photo of uh, the little Syrian boy who was washed up on the shores of Turkey. Right. Ailan Kurdi. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I finished studying at Columbia University, I obviously wanted to go back to the Middle East to, to, to just work in the humanitarian space and, and tackle this issue. And so I was looking for ways to 
to practice my Arabic while job hunting. And it was really then that kind of I had an aha moment because I was, you know, I didn't want to study formal Arabic. I wanted to study the dialect. And interestingly enough, Damascus used to be one of the most popular hubs for Arabic learning. I was just listening to the news and I was just looking at Lebanon, um, kind of crumbling under the weight of the refugee population. And um, I was just thinking, my God, if I were in Beirut right now and I'm like looking at these Syrians who've also fled just complete horror and then they get to Lebanon or they get to Turkey or they get to Jordan and they're they're stuck because they will really like if you're you know if you're an architect or if you're a journalist or or if you've you know you've been kind of in that middle class kind of segment you're never going to be able to work you're actually not allowed to work exactly so you don't have a right to work and you're probably never going to get a right to work unless you're like in construction or garbage collection or that type of profession and then it hit me I was just like, wow, if I were in Beirut, I'd just meet up with these Syrians and I'd have them be my tutors. And um, I could pay them for that. And I could also hear their stories. There's so many people who want to support Syrians, who want to learn more about them, who want to work on their dialect, their Arabic dialect. And Syrian dialect is is really important now. Um, And so that's kind of when I laughed at myself because I've I've actually always been cynical vis-a-vis the startup world. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just was a bit, I kind of associated it with really kind of just the tech startup uh, profit-driven organizations that just want high growth, high returns, et cetera. So I, I kind of laughed at myself, but I'm like, oh, wait, this could be a potential startup, but it would be like a humanitarian startup. So yeah, so you so you kind of have this aha moment where you actually need uh, a solution to your own Arabic learning issues. And then, and then I guess that sort of blossoms into creating a whole organization around it. So, so walk me through a little bit how, how it actually works on the ground. So how do you actually find refugees to participate? Um, do you, uh, need to sort of, um, administer any kind of training for them? Um, and, uh, what's the experience like on that end? So Netakelem has a very kind of strong position on the fact that refugees is 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 a very complex term, and the world um, kind of thinks that refugees need help and need training. But our premise is more like there's just millions of highly educated and qualified refugees. But they're just robbed from the opportunity to put their skill set to work, right? So our original approach to this was language learning in the context of the dialect of Arabic is is conversation-based, right? Because it's, it's we're talking about conversational Arabic. And the idea was Netakelem is an ideal potential platform for people who already have an existing level of formal Arabic and want to switch to the conversation. No, or people like me who have conversational Arabic, but they really need to continue practicing it and they want to find a way to do that. And so the idea was that the Syrians don't have to be teachers per se, but they just have to have the kind of um, skill set to uh, entertain a conversation and provide feedback, etc. So we collaborated with a local NGO and they introduced us to a few candidates that they thought would be potential good um, good language partners. And in fact, we call our tutors conversation partners. And that's how we we did our first pilot. And then um, and things picked up from there. And of course, since then, we've really kind of adapted and pivoted and, and changed a few things. Um, many people have started to ask for a structured curriculum. So we've collaborated with the head of the Arabic department at Cornell. So we can now offer 
a full-on curriculum option taught by Syrians who've been trained by the head of the Arabic department at Cornell University on how to teach this curriculum. But this is a curriculum that actually integrates conversational Arabic with the formal one. We, we have also come up with a, a basic training to provide tips on online learning, about how our, our kind of basic platform works, et cetera, et cetera. We do also do the matchmaking. We're not a marketplace because we're driven by impact and you know our desire to provide kind of as much income as possible that gets the individual close to minimum wage in their country. Some people are like with Doctors Without Borders and they want medical vocab. So we'll try and pair them with the nurse uh, on our team or people who are clearly journalists and want to talk politics with Syria. We carefully monitor that and make sure that we connect them with a Syrian who feels comfortable discussing that. Sure. So it's so it is about language and practicing language, but it also maybe is is really about learning um you know, aspects of culture, you know, political issues, um, making those kinds of connections yeah. as well as the language connection. Exactly. Yeah. No, we, we've definitely gone well beyond that. And we've had some students who've written to us that they've learned more using Netakalam than they'd learned in their coursework on humanitarian and, and human rights issues, or even working for UNHCR because they are, I mean, one of the students wrote to us that she's been welcomed into the home of her language partner. And it's been so eye-opening to just realize every single struggle that they face as a refugee, as a person who is even more like a Syrian refugee in Lebanon, what that does to you, what that label means to you. So we really believe in, in the importance of, of, you know, being just much more than just language teaching, but um, awareness raising and changing the narrative around refugees. I mean, of course, today, more than ever, um, this is needed. And we also now partner with schools and universities, and many of those programmings are more about the cultural exchange and awareness raising than the language per se. Hmm, interesting. So uh, we talked about how, you know, many refugees in Lebanon and elsewhere aren't actually allowed to work, um, especially refugees who have sort of higher skilled jobs. Um, have you have you kind of run into any challenges because of that, um, getting around that um, you know, how do you pay people, for example? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's um, it's an interesting area, right? Because it's this kind of rising freelance economy that is kind of above the law. Our bigger challenge in places like Iraq, where we have several refugees as well working for us, and and also Lebanon, is there's no payment mechanism, right? We can't, like, you know, in Turkey, in, in many of the European countries, because we have some of the refugees, some of the refugees are, are based in Europe now, um, we leverage all these new types of, you know, um, PayPal, TransferWise, I mean, et cetera. But um, in places like Iraq and in Lebanon, we collaborate with NGOs on the ground, and our programming is part of Cash for Work, programming of NGOs. And so partnerships and collaboration on the ground are really key to our, our development and our success. And some mm -hmm. countries, um, it's harder to do that. But in places like Lebanon, um, the country the country's concerned with full-time employment of refugees rather than freelance remote work um so there is also that distinction that we are not employing refugees per se they're not employed as full-time employees who get benefits they're, they're really part of a freelance economy right right and you mentioned that you know your goal is to get people to be making something around minimum wage in the country that they're in um 
has that been successful? I mean, have you been able to give people a, a living wage with, with Nuticulum? So some people are hitting um, minimum wage and above, and many of those are also uh, because they have certain skill sets as translators, and Netakalem has also recently added translation as one of our newer um, offerings because we've seen the potential um, and the demand for translation, and translation is another job that can be done remotely by displaced persons. So um, while not all of the individuals on our platform are, are hitting minimum wage, um, we probably have around 20 to 30 percent that are and that are actually hitting more than minimum wage. And I would say that 60 to 70 percent of the individuals working on our platform say that Netakalem is their only income source right now. So we we discussed sort of how um, on the student end, there is this uh, really important cultural exchange that happens, um, learning more deeply what it means to be a refugee. But what about... Um, what you've heard from from your conversation partners on on the other end in Lebanon and elsewhere. I mean, is it a job or is it a lifeline to the outside world? Um, a bit of both. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's definitely a bit of both. Um, we recently, I mean, a couple of months ago, we were we ran a survey um, to kind of you know get some feedback. It was interesting to see that um, the friendship component and accessing people worldwide um, was ranked higher than the income. Um, so that was actually the number one um, feature that they were the most excited about. Um, Interesting. And closely behind it was, you know, the, the financial lifeline, of course. Many of these individuals have helped um, their language partner try to get resettled, some successfully, some less successfully. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I think that for me, what's really fascinating is like there are many livelihood projects but they're, they're livelihood projects that are kind of within an economy. They tend to be in the agricultural sector. But it's fascinating, I mean, the power of human connection and the trickle effect that that, you know, creates. And we've had many students visit their language partners, uh, send us photos. It's great. Um, you know, so I, I think that it's, uh, it's a very core part of also what we do. Apologies for being possibly overly cynical, but um, do you ever get that taken to the extreme where, you know, say a refugee is, is sort of more interested in, in forming a connection uh, with somebody in the West in order to get access to the West or resettled or whatnot, um, where you need to sort of intervene in those relationships or um, kind of screen, screen for that? Um, yeah, that is something, you know, we, we, we are careful about, um, anyone using the Takalam will read a, a kind of a, a terms of agreement and part of those terms of agreement are really introducing the individual to the fact that the, the student, right, that you're about to kind of embark on, on a, a journey that's not your normal one-on-one -on -one teaching, right? You will be connected to all sorts of uh, displaced people profiles, uh, some more vulnerable than others, and that, you know, it's something to keep in mind that as as much as we, you know, we, we don't want to consider... Uh, like displaced people as the separate entity and, and they are normal people, right? But they are still normal people in extreme circumstances for some of them. And so, you know, it is natural that sometimes there will be instances where, um, and we've had instances where, you know, people who are 
working in certain sectors where the, you know, the language partner thinks that that person might have ways to help them out, they might ask, right? And um, we've very rarely had instances where this has become a problem or, uh, you know, and, and if it's a problem, it's more of just like, you know, the, the student just feels too much pressure and doesn't, you know, want to continue. Um, and I think that's only natural. And that's, you know, that's not a reason to kind of, uh, I think it's not a reason to be concerned. It's, it's definitely something that we address with the language partners. Um, but there's also a level of, um, of freedom we want to, to let happen in the relationship because it's really, I mean, from what we've seen, it's, it's more relationship building. Like we're seeing just friendships. We're seeing, um, people continue relationships outside of the language learning. Um, and I think that those are, those relationships are what is so needed, right. Um, in the current political climate, uh, that we're living in. So I, I don't think that it's, um, I mean, maybe we've had very, very rare instances where, where this happens, but of course, I mean, the language partners working on our platform, are first and foremost interested in it for the access to an income. What's it like sort of working on a startup in Lebanon? What's the sort of broader landscape of, of startup culture in Lebanon? Well, I mean, I am, I am not really in Lebanon all the time. I mean, I, I go to Lebanon often. Um, Netakalem is quite particular. We are a little bit all over the place. Um, I do spend most of my time in New York. Um, we are part of Columbia University's startup lab. Um, okay. And then I have my co-founder is based in Paris. He's out of the big startup campus called Station F, uh, kind of part of like, um, you know, the, the new uh, – Paris as a tech hub for, for Europe. Um, and so we have team members in Paris, New York, London, Cairo, and Beirut. Um, okay. so, you know, we're, you know, we're not, um, so, so I, I, we're part of the startup scene a bit in, in Lebanon, but not really entirely. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a little harder for me to speak to that, but I would say that what I've seen is that there's a rising startup scene in the Middle East, Beirut being a big hub, Cairo, Dubai, of course. And I do feel that um, social entrepreneurship in the Arab world, in the Middle East, is so incredibly important because the situation in the region is catastrophic. We don't know which country is worse than the other. Like, you know, you, you look to Syria, then you look to Libya, then you look to Egypt, then, you you know, it's um, it's. Um, our, our governments are failing us in the region, our, the international spheres and um, diplomatic core are failing us in the region. And I think that social entrepreneurship and startups are an incredible way um, that are pretty much, it's a grassroots approach um, in a way to kind of trying to gain control again and to, um, to bring change in the region. And I think it's so incredibly important for the Middle East. Have you seen examples or, or, or do you imagine that this kind of energy that you're talking about from the ground up can actually have, um, you know, a broader impact in terms of how governments relate to their citizens in terms of, you know, uh, creating pressure on policymakers to work harder? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. I, you know, and I, I think because I'm not 100% of my time in the Middle East, like I think it's also harder for me to, to kind of answer that. I think, I don't know if it's pressure uh, so much as, um, you know, potentially interest and kind of uh, 
rethinking about the possibility and the potential of the people that might be what's happening within, you know, the, the leadership and, and the governments. Um, you know, I know that the Lebanese Central Bank has released a fund to support startups in Lebanon, which is encouraging. Similar um, developments happening elsewhere. For example, Tunisia recently passed a kind of startup act. Yeah, no, Tunisia is obviously another country where there's a great push towards, you know, tech companies, mm -hmm. I think. And, um, and it's also interesting to compare historically Tunisia's role in the region and, you know, where they stand compared to other countries as well. So they've always been a bit more um, progressive in the region also. On the other hand, though, you know, there are, there are so many really solid and powerful initiatives for refugees. Um, but the scale of the issue really is so vast that, that often, you know, these, these efforts can feel like just drops in the bucket. Um, how do you sort of reckon with that? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Um, it, it, we are like, like a, a percent of a drop in the bucket when you look at the severity of uh, the refugee crisis. And I mean, refugee itself is a limited term. There's 65 million displaced people. A third of them are refugees. Uh, another percentage of them are asylum seekers. Another percent of them, and I think the, mass, uh, the, 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 the vast majority of them are inter internally displaced people. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's... Um, it, it is, you know, I do have mornings where I wake up and I listen to the news and especially with our current um, political leadership, I, I'm just like, what's the point? <laughs> so it is hard to not just, you know, want to sometimes give up because you do work so hard when you, you and you're part of a startup, when your startup is not like an app, but actually human humans and, and their lives and their livelihoods. And you feel this complete responsibility, actually, you know, you're, you're like, wow, this is so overwhelming and there's so much to do. But the little that I'm doing um, compared to how much is needed, you know, is it is it worth it? But of course it's worth it. Right. You know, everything's, you know, no matter how small an impact, it's, it's still an impact. And, you know, there is scalability in what we're doing. There is trickle effects. And, you know, I, I don't think I can even start to realize the impact of the, the human connection part of what we're doing. Right. So, you know, I, I find out about stories through the grapevine that, you know, uh, one, one of our language partners got resettled because their tutor, sorry, their student helped them fill out the forms and private did a sp private sponsorship in Canada, for example, or, or things like that. And, and that is a success. I mean, that is still a success, however small it is. What are your hopes and dreams for, for Nata Kalem in the next couple of years? I mean, I, our hopes and dreams for Nata Kalem is to literally become an intrinsic part of language learning throughout universities and schools worldwide so that if you're teaching a language to your students, you encourage and even make it mandatory for students to practice the language, but with displaced communities or vulnerable communities, right? Because it's a win-win situation and it has, it, it has the practical impact of providing a livelihood to a person. Um, it has the practical impact of creating awareness and letting people interact with individuals that have such a different life, life from theirs. Um, you know, so, so, you know, that, that's definitely one of our, our dreams and, you know, to expand to all languages and, and displaced communities and to continue to develop our translation programs where, um, this time we'd engage the private sector among others, right? Because 
companies, NGOs, organizations all need translation services. So potentially looking at the opportunity of hiring displaced people who through the gig economy can still access an income as well. So kind of those are big, big ideas for, for Netakellam. Fantastic. Aline, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It was great talking. And that's it for this week's episode. The 85% is a production of Emerge 85. Visit our website, emerge85.io, for more interviews, profiles, and features on the many changes unfolding in the emerging world. We're also on social media at E85Lab. Thanks for listening.